This is All Rings Considered, a read-through of The Lord of the Rings. We are on episode 49, and this is covering book 5, chapter 6, The Battle of the Pelennor Fields. And we got a special episode today, Pip, because it's uh, not just you and me today. Um, it's such a big epic chapter. Well, who is it? I figured deserved uh, a guest. So uh, with us today, we have Becky Strapple, uh, old friend of mine who is a PhD candidate at Western Michigan University, uh, PhD candidate in English. Uh, so she's here to uh, make us look like morons and uh, <laughs> bring some real expertise to the podcast. The bar set pretty low in uh, <laughs> that regard. Very low. Um, quite frankly, Becky, the last time we had a guest on this podcast, I th- I still think it was our best episode, which, as Pip pointed out, does not say a lot about us. <laughs> <laughs> Just any- anybody else speaking would Just be nice. <laughs> getting anybody else is always better. Um, so, yeah, Becky, how are you doing? Pretty good. How are you guys? Terrible, but uh, we're here. Oh, <laughs> gonna make thanks it work. for having me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Um, thanks for coming on. Um, so we're talking about the Battle of the Pelnor Fields here. Just a quick recap for anyone who needs it. Um, Theoden and his Rohirrim have arrived at the Pelnor Fields outside of Minas Tirith. They have charged into battle. First, they defeat the Haradrim. Um, then they are confronted. Specifically, Theoden rather is confronted by the Witch King himself. Now, the Witch King, well, rather before I guess he confronts Theoden, Theoden is thrown to the ground by his horse, uh, who has taken a, a shot from an arrow, and so he is down on the ground. The Witch King is then arrived to take care of Theoden, finish him off, but Theoden is saved at the last minute by Durnhelm, who is this mysterious masked figure we had met a couple chapters prior, who was riding with Mary in the Rohirrim. Durnhelm turns out to be Eowyn, and Eowyn and Mary end up defeating the Witch King, and we'll talk more about the details on that later, but those two end up defeating the Witch King. Uh, meanwhile, Theoden then dies. Eowyn looks like she might be dead. Turns out she's not, but at first she looks like she might, and so they inspire the rest of the Rohirrim to charge into battle and uh, take care of the rest of the men. However, it does not necessarily go super well. The Rohirrim are not necessarily winning this battle, and it looks like all hope might be lost because they see the black-sailed ships uh, that are supposed to be full of more men loyal to Sauron. And then all of a sudden, though, as they're despairing and thinking this might be it, the this banner unfurls from the ships showing Aragorn's standard. And it turns out Aragorn uh, has taken the ships and he's filled them with Gondorian men. They join the battle, and that's about where we end, uh, sort of the, the turn of the tide there. Uh, it's definitely, you know, you can assume victory at this point uh, for Gondor. They have pulled it off. Um, yeah, great chapter. One of the most pivotal chapters in the whole novel, and definitely, I would say, the most pivotal chapter in book five. Yeah, let's talk about it. So I think there are really like two moments that need a lot of unpacking here. And one is the Witch King and his duels. And the second is Aragorn arriving on the ships. Which one should we tackle first? Any preference? Let's start at the beginning. All right. Yeah. As, hey, bold move, as we've done before. <laughs> Uh, bold moves starting at the beginning and going on to the end. Um, yeah, so let's talk about Witch King. Becky, since, since you're here and you're somebody who knows English literature and medieval literature and stuff, I wanted to ask you, and I actually wrote this down, this character of Eowyn, like, showing up as, like, a woman, and she's, like, the only woman character we've met since Galadriel, quite frankly, mm-hmm. and therefore she's, like, the second one we've met in the whole book, um... She comes, though, she has this pretty uh, great fight, epic duel, great moment. Is there some kind of precedent in, like, medieval literature 
for this kind of character, this kind of like woman warrior character coming out and sort of showing up the men here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Tolkien actually has a lot of models he's drawing on here, which, you know, is, as you guys know, is very common for him. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it ranges from the kind of typical fair maiden of, of medieval literature, um, especially like later romances tend to be fair, um, you know, of skin and have blonde golden hair and often gray eyes um, rather than like yeah. blue or green. It's specifically gray, which she has all of those things. Um, and so he's, I mean, he's drawing on that for kind of her physical appearance. Um, but also he, there's kind of a long tradition of this kind of warrior woman in medieval literature, although it changes as the period goes on. So um, he is drawing a little bit from some later models uh, from texts like the Roman de Silence, which is about a, a girl who's born um, and she spends her whole life uh, as a boy and goes by the name of Silence. Um, Joan of Arc obviously is a, a pretty typical character there, but there's a, a specific set of, um, or a trope, I guess, in uh, Icelandic sagas and Norwegian sagas mm-hmm. too, um, that he's, I think, drawing on pretty heavily here, which are uh, diff- called different things, either warrior maiden kings or maiden warriors and um and those are it's kind of a a specific um stock character that shows up in a few of the different sagas um and usually the story goes that there's a the saga is usually about a man as they all tend to be some sort of hero or, or prince um and he rides into a kingdom intending to court the daughter of the king or the lord of that area and he gets there and he talks to the father and the mother and the father is usually ashamed because, oh, yes, all these women, all these men want to court my daughter, but she's uh, you can't do it. She's unavailable at the moment because she's off living in she's sort of um, established her own kingdom. She's living as a man. She dresses as a man. She leads the court and she even takes a male form of her name um, and is all the people are treating her as a man. And so she's not going to agree to marry you. And then, of course, the main character of the saga um, goes and talks to this woman, usually offends her by calling her by her female version of the name um, and, you know, uh, proposing marriage to her. Usually then that woman ends up humiliating that man because her forces will beat his forces or she'll trick him somehow and throw him out of the court. Unfortunately, at the end of most of these sagas, uh, that it doesn't turn out well for her. <laughs> Usually um, he ends up beating her forces. In some of the stories, he actually, they do like one, one-on-one combat and she always loses and is either beaten um, physically or unfortunately, content warning, in some of these is actually raped. And that's how she's sort of subjugated. Obvi- okay. And then she ends up marrying him and having kids and all that stuff. Obviously, Eowyn is not that. <laughs> right. <specific> right. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> Thankfully Tolkien did not go that way. Um he has a, a a different model which is kind of a version of this and um it's found in one of the only sagas named after a woman, which is uh Hervor Saga of Hathrex in Old Icelandic. Um the saga of Hervor and Hadric, and it's a legendary saga. 
And in this one, it sort of follows that pattern where it's a girl, she grows up, decides to be, that she wants to grow up as a boy. She's trained in all of the kind of male arts of, you know, swordplay and that kind of thing, dresses as a boy, and eventually ends up leading her own um, band of Vikings. And they're pretty famous. She does have a famous father, um, and he had a sword, a named sword, which are very significant in the sagas, named Tyrfing. Um, but it was buried with him because he had no sons. And usually that kind of inheritance would go to a son. So mm-hmm. she decides that she wants to go get that sword. Unfortunately, it's buried with him on a haunted island. None of her people want to go with her. So she goes by her. I hate it when that happens. I know, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. <laughs> so she goes and actually calls up her father's ghost and uh, fights him and ends up winning and gets the sword. And she goes off and has other adventures, but eventually she decides that, like, she's had enough of that. She's done with that part of her life. And instead, um, she goes back to living as a woman and gets married and has children and passes on the sword to then her sons. So, um, so that is a, a very unique version of this story because she's not humiliated and physically subjugated. She just yeah. kind of decides that she's had enough and she wants to do this other thing. And, and a really important thing to me is that um, she's just she's described as just as skillful at things like embroidery and kind of quote unquote women's work or women's mm-hmm. arts as she was at the at the male arts, yeah. um, mm-hmm. which is not really typical in in these tales. Um, a way to kind of make fun of some of these women is to say that like they're not very good at the stuff they're supposed to be good at as women, right? But she gets to be just as good at both things. So to me, that model is is very much what Tolkien was thinking about with with Aowen. Yeah, yeah. that's really fascinating. Do you see like? Uh, so I'm thinking of what you mentioned of her having to fight her her dad's ghost. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think the the Nazgul is some sort of? I mean, in some way, he's like a shadow of what they didn't mm-hmm. could have been in an evil sense, right? Yeah. You know, cool. this is a a evil king, right? A ghostly evil. King, is it was the ghost uh, malicious, or is it kind of just a uh, uh, sort of a prove yourself sort of thing? Well, he didn't. He he was um, resistant to her taking the sword <laughs> for sure. Um, but from what I remember, it's been a while since I read it. Um, but from what I remember, it it wasn't necessarily malicious. Ghosts in in Icelandic are kind of weird. In uh, old Norse and old Icelandic texts, are a little bit odd. They're often, some of them are malicious, but some of them are just very kind of, uh, very human and okay. kind of realistic um, and just uh, sometimes more mischievous than malicious. He was, he's, he's definitely not mischievous. He is, uh, you know, threatening. But I think, I don't remember him being like, um, classed as like an evil kind of spirit mm. or anything like that. It's more, maybe like you said, like a test um, he's resistant to her coming and waking him up and taking this this very important sword, which is part of his inheritance. And she's a woman. It's not supposed to pass to her. You know, eventually, of course, it does pass to male members of the line. So um, it's not quite like the feminist fantasy that <laughs> that we could perhaps want it to be. But um, but I've never thought of the the Witch King as a kind of yeah. reference to that. That's really interesting. And that's it. I mean, because. Tolkien brings Eowyn out here, and he could have brought her out in the Hornburg battle mm-hmm. way back in book four. You know, the yeah. Rohirrim in the fight, and yet he doesn't. He, he brings her here. So I, I wonder if there's... I think that's a really cool connection, Pip, potentially yeah. there. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, like you said, it's book. It's it's this is like one of the pivotal chapters of the book, and and so that might be another thing is that he's kind of saving her for this very important moment. Yeah. Um, you know. It definitely between her and Mary helping out here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely the same theme again of the the people you would least expect, the sort of mm-hmm. the people who are overlooked, the people who are the lowest in society are going to be the ones who actually have to pull up the pull up their pants and get the job done, uh, so to speak. And yeah, so it, it could be that it's just it's got no connection there, but <laughs> I don't know. I think that's still it's still cool. But it's, it's cool. It's so yeah. cool, yeah. Um I do have a question for um, you uh, scholars of literature. Um, so uh, one of the things that I find really cool about Eowyn is that um, there's this running theme in, uh, in The Lord of the Rings where um, one of the greatest powers is to be able to inspire others, right? So we see this with, like, immediately I think of Gandalf and you know his ring is like literally the ability to inspire courage. Mm-hmm. And um, you see Gladriel's uh, file like also have this sort of uh, courage inspiring element. Um, and you see this here when uh, Mary is uh, almost blind with, it says he's like blind um, from, you know, this horror of, of mm-hmm. the Nazgul. Um, but uh, Eowyn's stand against uh, the Nazgul inspires him to act, right? So you have this like, ah, like her defiance is this like, uh, like gleam of light that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, inspires others. And I was wondering, um, is this a Tolkienism? Um, because I know in some uh, uh, genres of myth, it's very, um, I'm the best, right? Like, oh, this is our hero. Yeah. He's the best. You know, mm-hmm. he like, uh, nothing can stop him. You know, that's um, uh, they, maybe Beowulf or something. But um, uh, yeah, is I this mean, uh, drawing from something? Or, my um, gut, Becky, is how much your Becky's point of view, but just to give you my gut is to say it is sort of a Tolkienism. Um, I don't really see it. It's not something you see too often in pre-modern literature. I know certainly the ancient Mediterranean epics would have no part in this. Um, <laughs> since the Greeks and Romans thought to be a hero, or the ancient Greeks and Romans rather thought to be a hero, was just to be really good at something, to be the best at something. Mm-hmm. You can be flawed. You can be a terrible person. Odysseus is a terrible person. Achilles <laughs> is certainly a terrible person. But they're the greatest at what they're good at, right? That's what makes them heroes. Um medieval northern europe i has sort of a similar thing going on i mean what's important there is are you the best kind of warrior i think they have their own nuances to it sometimes there's mm-hmm. a lot more about that like you know in anglo-saxon literature with like beowulf we see that gift giving is so important right can you give the right gifts to your mm-hmm. men and support your men so maybe it's more, more loyalty stuff swim really far or can, something absolutely you can have <laughs> yeah. swimming contests yeah. that you win um <laughs> very important believe it or not swimming becky does it Old uh, old Norse and old English stuff. Swimming is always this big deal. Like you yeah. gotta be able to be a good swimmer. That's like a huge <laughs> thing. Like if you are yeah. a saga hero and you roll up into <laughs> you know somebody else's palace, like one of the first things you gotta Hang do to like pool. prove your strength is like either talk about your swimming races that you won or yeah. do a swimming race and win it. It is a huge thing. Which it's always a lot of seafaring. Uh, yeah, yes, but the yeah. water's so cold. You would think the water's so cold up there. <laughs> They're heroes, Charlie. Yeah, they yeah. <laughs> doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, so this idea of like inspiring others, like to also be heroes, I've my first my first reaction is to say that's a pretty distinctly Tolkien idea. Uh, I don't know what do you think, Becky. I think I think if you're speaking narratively, 
um, it seems like a more modern impulse. Yes. I think um, if you kind of think outside the actual narrative, I mean, the function of heroes or for a different, mm. a kind of different um, context in the Middle Ages, like saints, are that mm. they inspire, right? They are, mm, uh, especially, yeah. especially saints, like those are, and yeah. they're on my mind because that's, my dissertation is about saints' lives in Anglo-Saxon England, and that's one of their main, main um, purposes is to, uh, to be models, right? They're exemplars, and heroes kind of function in a similar way. So yeah, narratively, I don't really see a lot of examples in medieval literature of somebody doing something and that inspires somebody else to, to also meet that or act. And I'm sure there are examples and people will disagree, but, um, but I think if you, if you think outside the narrative that Tolkien might just be tapping into a pretty universal, um, Mm. theme or, or yeah, um, heroes being, being inspirational. Um, he's sort of bringing that into the narrative rather than it just being, you know, for the reader or for the listener or whatever the case may be. I don't know, maybe. Yeah. But there's a lot of things with Tolkien that are kind of like both things. <laughs> He's kind of right. on both yeah. sides well, yeah. of an issue. So, <laughs> yeah. Which which I think makes sense because he is both writing a mm-hmm. pre-modern style myth, but he's mm-hmm. also writing a novel in the 1950s. Yep. Right? He's not divorced. It, like, Lord of the Rings is not one or the other, right? I mean, it, it does combine no. both these elements um, and has to function as both kinds of things so yeah for sure yeah yeah he's a weird pre-modern modernist yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh 100 percent um going back to a1 for a second here because you touched on something with the the norse saga parallels Mm -hmm. this chapter does not give us the conclusion of a1's narrative maybe we should go ahead and talk about that a little bit sure uh just it just closed the loop (laughs) Because Eowyn gets brought to the Houses of Healing later. Um, and honestly, I don't even remember if this, since I'm trying to stay chapter by chapter here for our podcast, I don't remember if this happens in book five or book six. Um, but she's going to be taken to the Houses of Healing, healed. She recovers. This is definitely book six, actually. Now I remember this. Okay. She recovers. Uh, she ends up falling in love with Faramir. Mm-hmm. And they end up getting married. Uh, Eowyn goes to become a healer she actually sort of that that becomes her new job um mm-hmm. this has been met with a lot of controversy because oh, yeah. uh is this in fact a sort of letdown of what you call earlier sort of the feminist fantasy or fem- uh, i forget what you said but something you know the sort of yeah yeah, yeah. Dream fan- the <laughs> yeah. dream feminist experience here of like nope she's just equal um to everybody else um and is this in fact like rejection of that and instead having her like oh actually women shouldn't be on the battlefield big mistake a win better get off and she does um some people take it that way and some people take it that way uh for sure so um what what's your take on this becky what's your take on this pip i mean given what we talked about the old norse parallels is that what happens here um is there something more is there another nuance to it well i would be happy to to address this. <laughs> oh, great. Go ahead, then. <laughs> because I have thoughts, the uh, a lot of thoughts about it. <laughs> oh, good. Perfect. Go. Yeah. So I think Charlie and I, I think this is what we talked about a very long time ago when you said, hey, when we get to this chapter, you should be on our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, because <laughs> I cannot not get into internet discussions about this topic. <laughs> 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 because there are a lot, as you said, there are a lot of people, especially women, 
or girls, uh, younger girls who read Lord of the Rings and get to this section and are very disappointed by mm-hmm. by this uh, ending for Eowyn. And then, you know, go on the internet and talk about it. And I have, I can't not respond to them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, because yes, I, I think I was kind of the same way when I, you know, the, I w- I used to be a little bit disappointed by Eowyn and a little bit annoyed by her, probably a little bit. Um, but then as I, as I got older and read more, um, got more familiar with the story, but also read more about Tolkien and learned about all the models and that kind of thing, my thinking changed a lot on this. And, I mean, partially that's just because, as I said, going back to what I think probably the strongest model for him, for Eowyn was with Herver. Um, I mean, he does not follow the, the usual, um, pattern for maiden warriors or maiden kings. She gets to peacefully decide. She gets hurt, but, you know, she, she gets hurt in a, a very honorable and, um, yeah, a, an honorable fight trying to protect her uncle and defeating the witch king, which is a huge deal. Um, and then can kind of decide on her own over time that this isn't for her anymore, you know. And when she first gets to the Houses of Healing, she is disappointed that she can't go out and be with the rest of the men. And she's kind of stuck inside and is afraid she's just going to go back to, like, her whole life of stasis. Um, but eventually, through meeting Faramir and talking with him and, and having time, she decides, no, I'm, I'm going to do this other thing. But it's not that she just, as many people say, she just becomes a wife and a mother, which also has, is problematic. Right. <laughs> you know, it's not feminist to say that like, oh, you're just a wife and a mother either. So that's another issue. But she, she turns, she actually becomes a creator, like you said, a healer. And she says that she's going to, um, to basically like turn to growing things. She's going to take care of growing things and take delight in that. So she does still become a, she still has a, a means of production and creativity beyond just like having children, for example. Um, and it's not only her who decides this, but Faramir too knows yeah. that he also decides to make a change, right? He's like, she says, I'm no longer going to be a queen. And he says, well, that's good because I'm not a king and that's not what we're going to be. So that's one thing, just the model that he follows. He chose a very specific model where, um, she's not humiliated and beaten and this this is her own choice right just like herber i think it's also significant that she beats the witch king as eowyn not as durnhelm she takes off her Mm -hmm. her helmet she you see all of the very uh female identifying things like her hair and her laugh and her voice and she she does it as herself but third and i think probably most important and this is not a medieval thing this is a modern tolkien thing I honestly very deeply believe that this was the best ending in Tolkien's mind for anyone, not just for Eowyn. Yeah. You know, is that she realizes it's not that she can't be a warrior anymore. It's that she chooses not to be a warrior. And hopefully because of the the quest that they went on and all of the sacrifices they made, she gets to have that choice and doesn't have to keep fighting anymore. Yeah. And that's, I think for him is, is that would be the best outcome and what he would really want for anybody is that they don't have to keep doing that anymore. It's not necessary anymore. Instead, they can, they can turn to healing and growing. And, yeah. um, so I think that's, and that's pretty important. That, uh, people don't turn into growing. That. I mean, Sam gets that ending by the right. things and Tolkien has famously said, Sam's probably the true hero of the whole book. Yeah. Um, so and we Frodo see that with other characters. Frodo doesn't. Yeah. Well, yeah. And um, it's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, we'll like talk he, a lot about that, the... you know. And... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Later on. Yeah. Um, but in, and also, I, I wonder too. 
is the best sort of if, if you were to put a modern analog onto Eowyn's trajectory is the, it's it doesn't seem to me that she it seems to me that she mm -hmm. quits fighting to become like a doctor or to become like a f chemist pharmacist something like mm. like it's not as though the position she's taking here is some kind of like crappy one in society you know what i'm saying yeah like i think there's a definite influence of you know sort of how we think about fantasy yeah. in modern times and how it's represented where a healer like if you're playing a video game you know the healer character mm -hmm. is sort of like a backseat role to like let the other players right. do right. their thing um right. whereas here we see healing being you know maybe one another uh, uh another of the greatest powers in you know in yeah. the lord yeah. of the rings where um uh I also am following chapter by chapter, so my memory is fuzzy for <laughs> the, the um, uh, upcoming book six. But you have um, Aragorn, uh, people needing the healing of the king, mm -hmm. right? And he, you know, does his lay on hands uh, sort of thing, where it's uh, the great he, his um, just his position and his importance uh, and his, you know, um, everything that makes him, you know, who he is. Mm -hmm. may, he, he has this healing power, whereas Eowyn also has that. Yeah. role where it's it's not mm -hmm. trivial to be a healer it's uh right deal. it's not true yeah. and i just want to clarify i was in no way suggesting that yeah women can't be doctors whatever i was trying to you know <laughs> that is that is kind of the uh charlie you said it i i don't know no, no, i was no. considering whether to I'm, say something <laughs> no 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 becky i've been uh hoping saying. to replace charlie with you oh, <laughs> and also just to quickly i forgot i wrote this down um to go back to my point about how she i don't know i think the change tolkien is pretty specific in in you know wording and mm -hmm. diction that he uses and and mary before he knows that uh dernhelm is eowyn when he first sees like the youth or whatever he calls him uh or her he says that her his or her face is one um is the face of one that goes seeking death having no hope yeah and she changes to the complete opposite of that you know, is, um, and she, I mean, she even says at some point, like, when she's in, cause I went, I knew we, we would probably talk about the, uh, Eowyn's whole arc here. So I did go ahead and read, um, the Houses of Healing chapter to nice, put it fresh in my <laughs> mind. And sorry. No, that's good. <laughs> no, you I can was correct us then and like, help us because yeah. it's, we're about there. No, like, no you guys are all right with the, years with memory, the stuff know. that you said. Um, but she, she says something like, like, she's alive. But and I think Aragorn says something too. She's alive, but I can't say whether she's really alive. Like, will she actually survive? I saved her life, but when she wakes up, she may have basically she may have nothing to live for. Um, and so it's not actually like killing the Witch King and almost dying that 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 prompts this change, because she was somebody who was seeking no hope before and was seeking death. And then even after Aragorn heals her, she's still that way. She's still very much described that way. So it's not like Aragorn, quote unquote, fixes her or changes her. It's really like the time in the Houses of Healing and talking with Faramir, which is over the span of a few days, I think. It's not immediate. Um, and just kind of like, I think he sees her for who she is and kind of understands her. And I think they have a lot in common, too, which you guys can talk about when you get to that chapter. But, but I think he like really kind of understands her on a level that like, very few people have her uncle and her brother and yeah. Aragorn. I don't. I don't think do. Um, and so that's kind of what changes her is that time in the houses of healing. And he actually says when they when when he kind of asks her to marry him, he says three times like if you will have me or if the lady will. So he repeats three times that it is her choice and she wants to do it. So it's definitely not the 
um, the kind of she just turns into a wife and mother and it's out of her hands and she's like totally passive now. It's very much not that. And I think Tolkien did that pretty specifically, yeah. repeating that several times. So it's, and you know, this isn't so much a question, but just something to like, that I just want to vent about for a minute, so to speak, <laughs> is it, this whole arc throws me for such a loop because if you're reading Tolkien and you're following his career as a writer, you read the Hobbit and you have literally zero women Mm-hmm. in the hobbit literally zero <laughs> one gets mentioned and she's not in the narrative yeah. um that's like it that's that's extreme i mean that's extreme for the 1930s let alone now and then you get to the lord of the rings and you're you're bumbling along and you, you get one with galadriel you get arwen makes a cameo mm-hmm. but galadriel's your first character speaking character and then you have nobody else and you go and go and go and all of a sudden eowyn's here and at first, she's not much of a character, but then she shows up here, and it's this big, big moment, and it's so important, it's so huge. Mm-hmm. That's just so interesting to me. Like, I think it just throws such an interesting wrench in, like, this this clear, what seems to be a clear-cut, like, patriarchal, sexist kind of narrative. Mm-hmm. And then he puts this in here, and it's, like, just enough to make you scratch your head and think, maybe not. Like, maybe there's mm-hmm. more to it. Um at the same time, it is only one arc, and it does take until book five of six for it to come right. out. So it's not like well, you she know. has an earlier. I don't remember what chapter it is. You guys would have already talked about it, but but you know when Aragorn talks to her, I think in um, in Edoras, and and yeah. she says like those something about uh, you are free to burn in the houses, like you know y- you can't come with me. You have to take care of the house, and she says. Yeah. Something like, oh, well, you're just saying you have leave to burn in the houses once all the men are dead. She she pretty yeah. strongly critiques his worldview. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But that, that was only like three chapters ago from this. Okay. Like three chapters yeah. This. So it's not that so much earlier. It, was, it, it really is not until book five that yeah. this stuff comes out um, hmm. in a big way. But, but you know, that's something interesting, Becky. You mentioned how uh, the Faramir and, and uh, Eowyn... Um, sort of parallels uh we get sort of the same sort of um effect or at least i do from uh faramir when he is uh describing sort of the the gruesomeness of war and how yeah. it's not glory you know there's because we have like most of this myth is like ah the glory of of battle and you know is, <laughs> is there right you know you get the uh uh the you know endorphins of of reading about that um which you know hard to escape for a myth about you know fighting mm-hmm. evil right um but but then you have this moment where it's uh faramir describing how uh horrible war is yeah. and how you know um and so that's i think that's kind of neat those two um mm-hmm. together yeah i yeah. think there's they have an interesting pair and they'll be fun to talk about when you get to that chapter um well we should i really think we should maybe consider moving on to aragorn the ships the sails yeah, I, before we do, I, do. There, I got two quick, th- okay. two quick, quick notes. This will be a long uh, episode for anyone listening. Um, <laughs> In case you haven't up. figured that out. <laughs> you know they yeah. see the timestamp before uh, they hit play, right? Like, well, think, you, know. you asked a doctoral candidate to talk about something she likes. so That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but my two notes before we move on of the um, for the Nazgul is, uh, number one is... Um, Something really cool that I like is just the physicality of evil mm-hmm. that Tolkien writes with. Um, two lines out of this chapter I pulled out were, um, Mary crawled on all fours like a dazed beast, and such a horror was on him that he was blind and sick. Um, and just I just feel that, right? It's not just, ah, 
evil guy. It's very scary. It's just <laughs> describing the, the such a physicality to the words. Um, and then uh, when the Nazgul is uh, attacking, um, here's the line. With a cry of hatred that stung the very ears like venom, he let fall his mace. It's just this, ah, the physicality of it. Um, and then uh, really important, maybe even more important than the discussion of Eowyn is um, there's a description of the, the creature that he rides. Um, and, and it also describes the Nazgul Lord. Uh, and it says, there are, some paces from, there are some paces from him sat the great beast, and all seemed dark about it. And above it loomed the Nazgul Lord like a shadow of despair. And so is the Nazgul Lord a shadow of despair, or is he like a shadow of despair? Um, like the... This is a joke, like the Balrog. Oh, okay. I was, I was actually about to seriously say, oh, Tolkien's done that before with the Balrog. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, screw um, you. Oh, book jokes. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of people do point out that, like, Mary doesn't get his, his fair share of of being of helping Eowyn kill the Witch King because it's yeah. his dagger that, like, makes him physical. Hmm. So, like, maybe he was a shadow until Mary stabs him. You know him. what? <laughs> I, I'm on Team Shadow here now. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, like, he's beyond. He doesn't really have this, like, form that can be physically killed until the the dagger from the barrow, like, works its magic upon his sinews or whatever it says. That's very yeah. badly paraphrased. But oh, you know we should. We, I didn't mention that in summary. We should maybe highlight that. It's just, just a cool bit. The dagger Mary uses to stab the Witch King before Eowyn kills him. So he gets stabbed by this dagger. This is from the barrow way back in book one when the hobbits were trapped in the barrows um it's from that barrow it therefore was crafted by men who fought the witch king generations and generations and generations ago and so therefore that dagger as Tolkien mentioned this chapter but it was designed to, to fight the witch king mm -hmm. designed yeah. to hurt him and it finally gets to fulfill its destiny but it, it's a cool moment and it's cool to see something from way back in book one show up here because there's no i there's no way i remembered that Mary had yeah. a dagger from the barrel. But as soon as he <laughs> mentioned it, I'm like, oh, he did. And yeah, there's no reason that would be have gone away. Go so. listen to that episode. Uh, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, just, just what, a, what a cool moment. Um, oh, I just remembered one other thing I wanted to say about oh. a cool thing that about Eowyn. Yeah, go for it. Is that, so talking about medieval models, if we're looking mm -hmm. at like Anglo-Saxon women who fight, which there are not yeah. very many of, uh, Judith, who kills Holofernes, an Old Testament story for those who not, might not know. Yeah. She's an Isra Israelite, and this guy is leading the forces, attacking her city, and she sneaks into his camp and blah, blah, blah. She cuts off his head. But it takes her two times, two like strikes to cut off his head. And then Grendel's mother, too, is also described as like she basically had as much less strength compared to Grendel as a woman does to a man. So she fights, and she actually is like, the first time Beowulf has a little stumble and has some trouble is when he's fighting Grendel's mother. Um, but she's still described as like weaker than Grendel. Um, and so I just think it's really cool and important that Eowyn cuts off the fell beast's head in one strike. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. that's cool, too. Yeah. I don't know if he was thinking about that, but I don't know. He probably yeah. was. <laughs> he's always thinking about it. those things. So. <laughs> I think, uh, on this idea of medieval models, too, I wonder if there's, given that he had all these medieval models, I wonder if there's also this subtle critique maybe not so subtle, of critique of Shakespeare, <laughs> because we know Tolkien did vocally yeah. dislike Shakespeare's work. Um, yeah. And we've already seen one of his, like, fix his corrections, I guess, of Shakespeare when he has the mm -hmm. ends actually march on Isengard. 
and it's it's the woods come to come to the castle from yeah. Macbeth, uh, but it's actually the forest this time. Um, yeah. And then this time, he takes Macbeth again, which he just clearly had a bunch of issues with, and I don't blame him. And he takes that stupid prophecy, yeah. <laughs> of, right? No man of woman born, you know, is going to kill whoever. And it, Macbeth, get what a cop out. It's because uh, he's born of a C-section, right? I think. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, yeah. And that's yeah. the what? So he's not born. So he's not born. <laughs> I guess. Tell I that know. to a woman who had I a C-section. What a cop out. <laughs> and so here, I guess we get no man and Tolkien zeroes in on the no man part. That's ah, well, we'll take that. That's yeah. a, and that is a much Technically. more, but that is a yeah. way more fulfilling, right? Like that yeah. is way more, yeah, way more fulfilling than that weird C-section loophole. If that is even is a loophole, <laughs> I guess whatever. Um, this one actually comes across as clever. Um. And I just, I, but I wonder if you project it out, if Tolkien's like, you know who did this kind of thing better? Medieval stuff. Let me put some medieval stuff here. You know, <laughs> Shakespeare didn't know what he was doing. Um, I don't know. I wonder. Um, okay. Anything else about Witch King? I guess not. Are we sure? Okay. I could just talk for hours. We could. No, no move Unfortunately, on. I just got to, yeah, I'm more worried about, it's not, the, I'm not worried about the length of the episode. I'm worried about me physically having to leave <laughs> uh, and so I we gotta knock this out reason. um yeah um okay so aragorn he's on the ships the ships with the black sails um great moment powerful moment much analyzed uh often analyzed through the lens of you catastrophe that'd be eu and then <laughs> catastrophe i'm not gonna spell the whole thing out it's been um, a while since i heard that one it has been sure great um <laughs> So it's analyzed through that lens a lot because Tolkien himself coined this word. It's not an actual term. Tolkien himself made it up to describe what he thought is something fundamental to great myths or fairy stories, as he called them. And the idea of you catastrophe is that, like, you get to some point when all hope seems lost. Uh, and then instead of all hope being lost, there's this sort of miraculous good news thing. And I, miraculous maybe isn't the best word to use there because I do think there's a... I don't think Tolkien means it as a deus ex machina kind of thing, like mm -hmm. a complete out of nowhere stuff, although arguably he does use it that way with eagles and stuff sometimes. More often, I think he tends to use it, though, as something that reasonably could happen. Like, it's not unreasonable that Aragorn was in those boats. We had forgotten about him. We haven't seen him in chapters and chapters. Um, last we saw, he was marching through Gondor with the army of the dead. It does make sense. It's not totally, you know, random or mm -hmm. unprecedented um, for that to be there. Um, it was set up. It, it was set up. It was set up. Yeah. But it still yeah. is unexpected. Like, it's deliberately designed to catch you when, you know, you're not expecting it. I will say, like, in one essay, or one, I guess it's an essay, when one of these works Tolkien wrote called On Fairy Stories, uh, Tolkien compares the idea of you catastrophe. He actually uses the word, uh, the Greek word, evangelium, as a sort of parallel for you catastrophe and evangelium is the actual greek and borrowed into latin word for uh the gospels in the new testament and i think tolkien means that deliberately like he he sees this as a catholic as a catholic that he is he sees this um you catastrophe not as just like a narrative device too but also as somehow reflecting like how the universe work how like god works right um in some sense so to him it's very real and like very personal uh so to speak so yeah you catastrophe you catastrophic moment here <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh with the sales um yeah any thoughts on that 
Um, it doesn't have to be about you catastrophe too. I just wanted to cover my bases there. It's the namesake of uh, this volume. It's the return yeah, of the king. That's true. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's uh, there's this great. Well, I, I don't really know. I don't know about great, but there's this conversation between Aragorn and Aramir, mm-hmm. and um, Aragorn says, uh, "Thus we meet again, uh, though all the hosts of Mordor lay between us." Said Aragorn. Did I not say so at the Hornburg? Um, which I mean, my uh, biblical knowledge has like really waned um, <laughs> over time, um, but that sounds very Jesus-like. Um, maybe you guys can. Uh, oh, did I not? Yeah, um, like the question yeah. afterwards. Like I told you this was going to happen, and you didn't believe right. me. <laughs> I was like, you know, uh, you have little faith sort of uh, yeah. situation here. That's right? true, yeah. I could see that, um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good catch. Um, I think structurally, I've been calling out the last few episodes how Tolkien keeps doing this weird thing in book five where he just saps all tension out of stuff because he describes events happening and then he flashes back to the characters who didn't see the events happen and has them wonder, I wonder what's happening with that. And we're like, well, we know. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of just silly. But he didn't do it with this event, right? Like, this one stays a surprise yeah. until it happens. So and I, I do think, looking back on how he was structuring Book 5 earlier and doing those weird things, I think it made this surprise hit all the hit all the more effectively. So I, I think there was a point yeah. to that. And uh, it wasn't just weirdness, <laughs> for weirdness's <laughs> sake. Uh <laughs> Yeah, so I, I I like that. I like that there's just no foreshadowing of this. There is no... You just could not have seen it happen until it did. Yeah. Right. There, there is something... I mean, the... Um, the uh, another Christ connection is the uh, heralding of Aragorn's arrival by stars. Oh, right? yeah. So oh, you have yeah. the Gondorian stars uh, being the first thing that they... You know, it's, it's the banner, right? And yeah. you see yeah. it. Um, and then the king comes, right? Yeah. I like Pip's like I my biblical knowledge sucks, but I'm the one who sees all of it. <laughs> you guys, I remember some quips that Jesus made. <laughs> uh, I remember the owns, Jesus, right? Like, like Jesus owning some fools, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then uh, some stuff from Christmas, uh. <laughs> which is still more uh, than I brought to the table. So I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're doing good. Um, all right, uh, so Aragorn, anything else about him? Or, okay, I think we need to open up to anything else left in this chapter to talk about. And we'll talk about anything else you guys have, and then we'll end with favorite lines. And, yeah. All right, so were there, was there anything else in the chapter we need to talk about in terms of topics, themes? I really just like, I really like the poem we get at the end of the chapter because okay. it's a, it's a, classic Tolkien just making up some old English verse. Right, yeah. <laughs> because the Rohirrim are, are Anglo-Saxons. Um, but, I mean, he has... Now, I I do not... I'm not an expert in meter, so I don't... I'm sure this doesn't fit the, the required meter for old English verse, but we have um, alliteration, which is the main organizing principle for old English verse rather than end rhyme, which happens right. later. Germanic languages do not rhyme very well (laughs) so instead we get a lot of alliteration and he does that really nicely here and um, a lot of the kind of naming of of people um, who I think all died yeah fought and fell there in a far country so um, I don't know that's all I have to say I just like that we get a little 
this mm-hmm. poem at the end, which is very uh, much an homage to old English poetry. Yeah. It's so, the, all the Rohirric poetry is always in that alliterative meter. And I pointed out last episode, I think it was last episode, that it was funny to see Theoden. Theoden seems to be able to do it improvisationally. Yeah. Like off the top of his head, he can just make alliterative meter. Um, and Aomer does the same thing here uh, throughout this chapter yeah. with his poems. When he's like running around killing things, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they don't really do that. We don't see that in old English poetry very often, but... Like you said, swimming is really important for heroes. In Old Icelandic and Old Norse poetry, that's another thing. Like, heroes are very often good poets, too. And there are a lot of poetry contests in sagas. And usually, uh, the more (laughs) heroes are, like, better... They're really respected when the drunker they are, the better they get at poetry. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) And so that's just... Which which is something interesting (laughs) that Tolkien did not take that... From that yeah. element of old Norse sagas, right? Like dr- alcohol is very absent in Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah, other than in a very so. a very feminine role, which is another mm. thing that Aowen does, which is passing the cup at feasts. Right. Yeah. And it's not. I mean, he doesn't talk about the fact like what kind of alcohol it is, but but yeah. that's but that is a function she serves. I think several times, and that kind of that's a very uh, very typical uh, feminine role in Old English and Old Norse. Mm-hmm. Uh, sagas as well so she definitely fulfills that several times i have um i wrote down or at least i, ma- I made a note of the role of i've talked about this before but the role of laughter in mm. the lord of the rings um mm-hmm. as a um mirth as a um uh tool against evil yeah um we see this uh when frodo and sam are making their way into mordor um and there's laughter there and it's uh the first laugh that's been there in a very long time um but we see in this chapter um eowyn and eomir um Mm -hmm. laughing in in the face of danger right um uh eowyn laughs uh when she is doing the reveal um you know as imposing the uh the witch king um and eomir actually as he's speaking his poetry um and he laughs as he goes into to battle and then also I had a question. So, uh, Becky, I'm going to throw this one over to you. Um, uh, I know that uh, you have had some scholarship on the World War One poetry mm-hmm. and its treatment of dead bodies. Yeah. Um, and in this chapter, we get a lot of attention on the treatment of the dead. Um, so not just for the humans that die, but also um, we see the horses. Um, so there's um, snowman and the creature, and they get buried, and then one has a beautiful yeah. hillside, and another one is like a desecrated land. And actually even Mary Sword gets sort of a funeral rites um, paragraph um, where it's, uh, you know, and it says, uh, so past the sword of the Barrow Downs, work of Westerness. <laughs> and then, you know, um, and this, you, like, you know. recording <laughs> just yeah. reading The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, but then you have this, you know, um, sort of eulogy for the, mm-hmm. the sword, right? Um, so is this uh, sort of thing, like, is this characteristic of um, the works that uh, Tolkien is drawing on? Or is this also, do you think this is a, has effect of him going through, uh, uh, you know, his experiences? Yeah. I think, again, it's kind of both. Um, I don't off the top of my head, at least in, so just to be clear too, I'm an early medievalist and I mostly focus on stuff before the 12th century. So there could be later things that he's drawing on that I'm just not as familiar with, but 
Um, I don't feel like there's a lot of emphasis on like dead bodies in early medieval uh, literature, but there hmm. is a heavy emphasis, especially in Old English, on the transience of things, of life, but also things and objects and buildings and how everything will pass away and how we will all be dead eventually. <laughs> um, so the sword, the stuff about the sword makes me think of that. Like there's a few, there's a few poems in Old English that have uh, stanzas about, well, not really stanzas, but lines about um, like ruins of buildings. Um, and they're kind of these meditative stanzas talking about these ruins. And in Beowulf, when um, he is fighting Grendel's mother, he takes a sword off of the wall and you get a kind of like a biography of the sword that he's taken. And so that it reminds me of that a little bit. Um, but the, the World War One thing, until you asked me this question, I hadn't really thought about Tolkien's connection to other World War One poets. But it's something that's really interesting because he he had the same a very similar upbringing to a lot of these other um often officers, kind of upper class or upper middle class officers who, who become, who fight in the war. Um, they all kind of usually went to like private schools, had a pretty classical education, were very versed in poetry and then became writers of, of became poets themselves. Um, and my scholarship that you mentioned kind of argues that from the beginning of the war to the end of the war, we see a distinct shift where in the beginning of the war, uh, war is very much glorified. It's this kind of great adventure for boys to go on and become men and it's all for nation and for home and then as the war drags on and people start to realize that it's a pointless war and it's not going to be over by christmas you start seeing a lot of fragmentation of bodies a lot of emphasis on the dead bodies and what happens to them and very visceral d details about like i said fragmentation and gas and what it does to people and what happens to bodies when they lie in no man's land and nobody does anything with them Tolkien, obviously, I don't think quite goes to that um, to that extent, but he was at the Battle of the Somme, which stretched from July 1st to November 18th, um, so months long, and it was it's one of the bloodiest battles ever in history. He got trench fever, and um, he had two five day two five day long uh, stretches of duty at the front lines in the Battle of the Somme. And several of his close friends died during that battle. And so, you know, he said many, many times that Lord of the Rings was not an allegory for anything, especially not for World War II, which everybody seems to think it is. Um, but I don't think you can go through that and not be affected by it. Right, yeah. <laughs> and and that is why I think, like I said, for him, Eowyn not being a warrior anymore is actually the best outcome. That's why for Sam, like Charlie said, that's he gets to to tend to growing things and not have to do that anymore. Um, that's why Frodo basically has PTSD and can never come back. Right. And that's why the Shire is never going to be the same for him. So, so he did say several times that the war did shape kind of stuff he was working on. He started working on some of the things that became the Silmarillion um, when he was recovering from trench fever. So I think it is both. You, you see this kind of emphasis on transience and um, how things pass away and how we will all eventually die in old English poetry, but also I think World War One is definitely in there as well. Um, just not to the same extent that someone like Isaac Rosenberg or um, some of the other World War One poets would would deal with their bodies. <laughs> All so right. yeah, long there you go, long answer. But I think <laughs> oh, thank <both>. you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we we got to wrap it up here. So let's talk about favorite lines, um, Becky. If you have one, uh, feel free to share. I'll, I'll go ahead and start though. My favorite line here in this chapter is 
a great rain came out of the sea, and it seemed that all things wept for Theoden and Eowyn, quenching the fires in the city with gray tears. Uh, it's a cool little, uh, cool sounding line, but also a cool little moment of, I don't know, I mean, Tolkien doesn't think that the, that it actually is weeping for Theoden and Eowyn, you know what I'm saying? But he's, you know, he's had nature be such a strong presence in the, in the narrative that you can't help but, but think a little bit, like it's, it's on their side a little bit here, so I like that. Um, I... Pip, you go next. I'm looking for okay. my line. <laughs> um, so this line I like not because of the prose, uh, but just sort of its description. So um, this is Eomir as he's uh, making his stand. Uh, it says, So he rode to a green hillock, and there set his banner, and the white horse ran rippling in the wind. Um, and I kind of mentioned this in the last episode, too. I think I'm just a sucker for this imagery of just the <laughs> the description of the symbol itself and what the symbol is doing, like the white horse, uh, like running in the wind, right? But it's actually just a flag, and I like that. So so, so there. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so I have, like, I won't read all of them. I have, like, favorite paragraphs, and it's so it's not a surprise at all it's the part when eowyn kills the witch king <laughs> it's okay. actually the part before when she's talking to him but which basically gets distilled in the movies to i am no man and that's it um yeah. and it loses i think quite yeah. a bit in the translation but i mean the favorite line for sure is begone foul dwimmer lake lord of carrion because that's just a great that's the only time i've ever heard, seen dwimmer lake used in a book so that's great um but that whole section where she says but no living man am I. You look upon a woman. Eowyn I am, Eowyn's daughter. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone if you be not deathless. For living or dark and dead, I will smite you if you touch him. Which is the part that just gets to be I am no man, basically. Um, but it's just such a great, uh, it's such a great line. And then the, the part two with the laughter that I think, Pip, you mentioned before is one of my favorite parts too. Um, Oh, then Mary heard of all sounds in that hour the strangest. It seems it seemed that Durnholm laughed, and the clear voice was like the ring of steel. Such a great line too. But um, she she mentioned specifically, "You stand between me and my lord and kin," and that's also a very Anglo-Saxon impulse that she's yeah. talking about there, with loyalty and protecting your lord at all costs. So it's yeah. just a lot of stuff packed into that paragraph, which is really cool. Love it. All right. Um, well, again, I have to physically go, so <laughs> uh, I would actually love if this episode could go longer, but uh, we're going to have Someone to call it here. Someone has to go take pictures in Newfoundland. I do. I'm traveling to Canada <laughs> and have to go do that. So um, good episode. Next uh, episode, we are on book five, chapter seven. What's the title of this chapter? Hold it. Hold up. I think it's the Denethor, the Pyre of... The Pyre of Denethor, yeah. All right, great. So, should be a good episode. Um, we Becky, will... thank you so much. Yeah, thanks Becky. for having me. This was super yeah. fun. Yeah, come back anytime. anytime. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and yeah. Now that um, you're almost done. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, who knows? You know, there's just uh... like Eowyn, I'm coming in book five all the way to the end. <laughs> you waited. <laughs> oh shoot. <laughs> Uh, it's it's you catastrophe. It is. Oh, perfect. I'm so uh, just when the podcast was at its <laughs> lowest moments. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
All right. But yeah, thank you, Becky. Um, <laughs> yeah. Audience, we will see you next time for book five, chapter seven, The Pyre of Denethor. Thank you.